So do you ever, um, you ever have something that you enjoy because you don't have access to it all the time? Like say you're traveling and you know, like when we went on our last vacation out West to see an In-N-Out burger in Provo, Utah, <laughs> we, of course we had to go eat it and it's like, Oh, this is so good. But in reality, probably five guys burger is just as good. If I don't, people debate, but you ever have that where something you can't have it all the time. So you really, yeah, you kind of cherish it when you, yeah. when you end up having it. My friend's dad, we probably say his name. He, well, why not go out on them? So David, my friend, David, his dad recently moved up here from Florida and mm-hmm. he loves quick trip. And I love quick like trip. You're talking about the convenience store. Yeah. The gas station gas wow. for, for people that aren't, Yeah, we have a series of, well, they're pretty big throughout regional, but quick trip is the best gas station because it really is quick. You, they get people through the line. They're so fast. They're so professional and they have good, food there but he loves their hot dog bar when you can go in and make <laughs> your own hot dog yeah and i have another friend that loves their frozen coke but i never really thought like well, quick trip is such a blessing because it's here <laughs> all the everywhere. time yeah it is funny to see someone come from another area and just and the things that they like yeah yeah but i was thinking this morning casey's is also a regional started in iowa convenience store general store they're like the antithesis of like I think they should be called slow trip. Like their their <laughs> cashiers are or just like hey honey, and there's no training, yeah. no like I've got all day, so you've got all day. But but they have the best pizza. Yeah. They, their pizza blows quick trip pizza away. Yeah. yeah. But I joked with I, I you gotta kind of put a little hour out of your day if you're gonna go in there and do something because it's just you know then the social distancing. So you're lined up down the block and it's just like you know everybody's got all. It must be there. So I like to call it slow trip. <laughs> slow trip. <laughs> but if you're going to have decent pizza, then you, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. I think this episode will probably air the day after Christmas, number 99, Corey. So he pointed out our 100th episode will be probably the first one of the new year. Wow. wow. I don't want to speak too much about 100. That That is a mile marker, but we'll save that for the 100th episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all who've uh, been along for the ride so far. We're enjoying it. Did uh, last the last couple episodes were kind of standalone episodes, but but not really. But uh, several episodes back is probably episode ninety six. We were talking about what does the Book of Mormon teach about salvation. Mm-hmm. I, I refer to that as the squirrel episode. We we talked about squirrels and their superhero powers as well. <laughs> but um, Corey, you brought something out, and I just because this just aired yesterday, I, w- I was listening to it to refresh my mind for today. You brought out something that I had never, well, I never focused on, and it was we all know John three sixteen for God so loved the world, gave His only begotten Son, and you brought out the word for that. That's a comparison. Now sometimes people read the verse after, and we focus on that, but the verse, what is John? What's the verses before John three sixteen say? I wanted, I was just touched by this yesterday because I even probably didn't focus on it too much when we actually were were podcasting at that point. What did it say? 
I'm just going to answer your question. Yeah. It's a parallelism and it's the answer to the parallelism. Now, now having said that, I, I want to just say something because this is so appropriate, Mike. Here it is. Um, we're recording uh, early morning, but uh, I like to study early in the morning, earlier than we podcast. And I've had it on my mind recently that the punctuation, as we have it in the English Book of Mormon, is misses the point. And, and what do I mean by that? When Joseph Smith took his handwritten manuscript to the Book of Mormon printer— this guy wasn't really in on the translation or anything. He was just a guy who could take typeset, you know, and, and make make a book, print it on a page. Well, the book, and if you look at the original manuscripts, was just all written kind of um, almost not even divided in paragraphs. It was just sentences rolling on into sentences, the one in new division. Well, a good printer in English, especially someone who probably was pretty capable with grammar and writing style, if he's in that line of work, knows that Americans don't start this, start a sentence with a word for, and, and often you don't start it with and. I mean, it's just, you, you could do it in conversation, but it's not really the preferred way to write in English. So often in the Book of Mormon, there will be these um, statements that start with the word for, but I was curious about this, Mike, because in, in the Book of Mormon, and this is the point, there will be long, long sentences that have commas in the middle, and then the, they'll say for this and for that and for this. And I, and I was thinking, I thought, you know, I've been studying these sentences and realizing these parallels that are constantly through them and realizing sometimes a parallel will make a point and it'll kind of go A, B, A, B. It'll make a point, then it'll make another point, and then it'll go back to the first point and then go back to the second point. But then it'll make a third point. It'll make a substantive kind of like a climax or a conclusion to everything. And sometimes that sentence will begin with, yay, comma, like I'm telling you, here it is, and it'll explain everything. But what I was curious about, Mike, was this word for. And just this morning, I was curious. I had this Jewish Hebrew Bible, and I thought, you know, we have a lot of Book of Mormon's statements that have the word for, but they're always the continuation of a sentence. And I was wondering, in the Jewish thinking, in the Hebrew thinking, was that a continued sentence or was it something else? And it sounds trivial. It sounds like, well, what's the point of this? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal because the word for, I looked in this Jewish Hebrew Bible, and in fact, I even emailed you a little <clears throat> example of this. I just started reading it this morning because I wanted to see, <clears throat> does in the in the Jewish mind, when they translate into English, do they have these run-on sentences, or do they stop and do they start a new sentence? Well, it's throughout this English translation of this Jewish Bible, the word "for" starts not only sentences; sometimes it starts paragraphs. and And the the point is, it's it's a way that the Hebrews wrote when they were finally coming to the main point, and they just say, "For this is God, and He lives." Boom. And it and and it's in the in the Hebrew grammar style. Sometimes they'll call that like an ellipsis, where the the point or there might be a verb or it might be a noun that's kind of omitted because it's obvious what it's talking about from the previous text. And so I was looking through this Hebrew Bible this morning, and I've seen all these sentences that start with four. Well, when we come back to John three, so let's work this back to your question. John three is this. John three sixteen is literally the most famous scripture in the New Testament, probably to most Christians. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, here it is. It's starting with four. But everything that it's stating is concluding the scriptures before that. And the scriptures before that, now just kind of summarizing here, was the answer to Nicodemus' question, hey, what does it mean to be born again? All right. What, what, is, what is my response? And when Jesus explains this to him, he tells this story. And, 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 and Nicodemus is like still a little confused by all these things Jesus is telling him. And, and, and so Jesus says, hey, you're a, you're a master in Israel, right? And you don't understand these things. Maybe he's rubbing it in a little bit. He said, well, let me tell you, let's go back to something that every, you know, uh, any young Jewish boy knew since his bar mitzvah. He said, I'm going to tell you this story about Moses. He said, remember this time when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they got bitten by fiery flying serpents? He said, well, just like that, and then this is John 3, 14. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, that's a parallelism right there. It's, it's comparing what Moses did in the wilderness to what Jesus would do for us, the, the physical to the spiritual. And the serpent that bit was also the serpent that healed, right? Yeah, all they had to do was look at it. And so, once again, so... He's continuing this parallelism because, again, any rabbi knew and any any citizen in the in the Jewish community knew that also the rest of that story was not just that <clears throat> as this serpent was lifted up on the pole, uh, this thing that had bitten him, that Jesus will be lifted up. But he says that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life or have everlasting life. And so he's taking the physical of the looking at the serpent to the spiritual, to looking at Jesus, to not only have physical life restored, as they knew in that story from Moses' day, but to have spiritual life granted. And so everything that Jesus is saying up to this point are these beautiful parallels between the physical story of the serpent that bit them and was bringing death and the same serpent that, if they would just look at it, would bring them life. So Jesus being lifted up, and Jesus being the one we look to, he said, this is all what I'm talking about. And then he, a brand new sentence starts, and he's concluding everything. He said, if you didn't get what I'm telling you, here I'm going to restate it in, in um, no uncertain terms. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him, and I'm emphasizing him because that is the point, should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, often we read it and we emphasize, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We miss this point that believing on him was the perfect conclusion to everything he had said. So anyhow, I'm sharing this and I'm kind of excited because as I'm looking through this Hebrew Bible, I'm realizing they do this all the time. I, I have right in front of me just a, a verse from uh, Isaiah 30, and I'm reading from, it's called Stones Tanakh. Tanakh was the Hebrew word that meant Old Testament. And there's a Hebrew side on one side, and there's an English side on the other. And it, it's a, here's a statement. It's a sentence. It just says, for a people will dwell in Zion in Jerusalem, period. That's just one sentence. But it starts with the word for, and it's the conclusion of everything before it, how God was going to bring them to um, back to Zion. Uh, here's another one. For thus saith 
my Lord Hashem Elohim, the Holy One of Israel, period. That's a sentence that concludes everything that God had said in a prophecy, but that's how they state these things. So this gets us back to the Book of Mormon, and and I, I don't want to belabor this point, but in the Book of Mormon, I'm realizing we have been the victim of English punctuation, which sometimes detracts from the meaning that the Hebrew intended it to have, where there's a lot of places where we have these long sentences that say for this, for that, for the other, but those fours are supposed to be sentences because they're complete statements of of truth that summarize everything before mm-hmm. it. And I, I've been, I don't know if this will ever come to pass. I, I don't think there's going to be enough years left in my life to do all these things I, I see that could be done. But I really think the Book of Mormon needs to be, um, I don't want to say rewritten, not not change the word, but simply written back in a in a punctuation style that better approaches what the Hebrew intent was. And the Restored Covenant edition started that. And it's like, my gosh, we have been so blessed by the work of people who are are gone. They're not with us. You know, Ray Treat, Shirley Heater, um, and, and others, uh, Angie Kroll, who, who painstakingly went through the original manuscript and found many words that had been changed from earlier manuscripts and they put those words back, but I'm seeing that the punctuation got left sometimes um, in the in the way English people think. And there's more truth and meaning that can come out of it sometimes when that when those words get even put back in that proper context. So anyhow. that's interesting. That uh, as I was listening yesterday, that was one thing that stood out. You and I didn't talk today, but you had, were going through this this morning yourself because it was uh, several weeks ago where we recorded yesterday's episode. I think back to think back to the people, Corey, that um, in Moses' time, there could have been, you know, God could have done anything to save them from the fiery serpent, you know, drink, eat, eat this bread or put, put blood on your forehead of a lamb or, you know, like on the doorway. But the fact that, that they picked that thing to put a serpent that was killing them on a pole and lift it up, knowing that, you know, years and years later, Jesus would uh, bring out the fact, the similarity. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and the fact that we as, as Christians today, and I'm not just speaking in the restoration, but in the, in the collective community, don't always even read this in context to understand that point that Jesus was making. I mean, you can... You can't really take John three sixteen out of context. I mean, it's true. God, you know, loved the world so much that He provided this way of salvation. That that is the essence. But the comparison, yeah, when you bring in the comparison, you're looking at a, a bigger picture, a more complete picture, yeah, of, it, of the whole experience of what He did, the whole experience of what He did, and the whole experience of Israel's history. Right. So, and, and the beautiful part of this that goes back to the Book of Mormon is this is explained so well with such clarity in the Book of Mormon. I mean, you could read the Bible your whole life and not quite get that point mm-hmm. of what Jesus is talking about. You know, it's a thing that happens back in the story of Numbers, I think is where it's recorded. But this this idea that um, that this one who is the merciful is also the just, this was, this was just one other thing. It was on the same page, Mike, so I got to read it. In the Stones Tonight, when I was I was just this morning thought, I'm just going to read some of this Isaiah. Again, it's English translated from Hebrew, and it's done. It was, I don't know when this one was actually done, but it's a more modern translation. And and the reason this is good is um, it's because we, 
we in Hebrew scholarship is better than it was like 400 years ago when mm-hmm. they did the King James Bible. And the Hebrews will tell you this too. You know, back in that day, Hebrew was kind of a dead language. And I think we mentioned that before. Right. But this but this isn't like, um, sometimes you get like, oh, I'm not trying to pick on one. I'm just one that comes to mind, like the Living Bible. I remember a lot of people, especially wrote fundamental people were so critical of that, but any Bible that was anything other than the um, King James, King James, or the Inspired Version, even because they felt like it was watering down the truth. You know, it was just trying to use too much modern language, right. too much modern context, where words could be lost. And so, in this, it's not that case. It's not that it's just trying to be current or trendy or something like that. They, they've really gone and they've taken the essence of what the words mean uh, from the Hebrew. So, so get this. This is what astounded me in the same uh, search this morning. This is from Isaiah 30. Um, actually, do you have, if you can bring it up on Restore Gospel, you can read it from the King James or from the Inspired Version. Go to Isaiah 30 and, and find verse 18, if you wouldn't mind. We'll get back to the Book of Mormon here in a second. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Okay. So remember, we've made this point a couple times, how the Book of Mormon is so clear about talking about mercy and judgment and how those words don't even really occur, at least in English and like the King James anywhere. And also the word grace, we get the word grace a lot in the new Testament. You know, we think Paul's always talking about grace and all this stuff. Right. So (laughs) this morning, as I'm looking for these sentences that begin with this word for realizing the book of Mormon needs to be punctuated way differently, but I come across this and I'm reading from stones to knock. This is the English translation from the Hebrew. Once again, Isaiah 30 18, listen listen to these words. Um, Therefore, it said Hashem. Let me explain. Hashem means the the name. It means the name of God, the the name that the Orthodox Jews say we're not able to say or capable. So they always just refer to, you know, like we say God, but they they don't even want to say it. They just say the name. So they say, therefore, Hashem will delay in showing you grace. Now, this is Old Testament showing you grace, and therefore he will be aloof from showing you mercy, for Hashem is a God of justice. Praiseworthy are those who yearn for him. But did you notice three words in there? It uses the words grace, which never appears in the Old Testament, in in like King James or anything like that. But it's the better translation. You you read it from King James or Inspired Version, and it said what? Gracious. Gracious. Yeah, gracious. Right? And then it talks about mercy, and what did it say? That he may have mercy. Well, it doesn't say it, it, he'll it, be aloof. It says no, that he may have mercy upon you. He has mercy. But then and it says, for he is a God of, what does that say? Judgment. Right, judgment. But this says justice. Now, judgment and justice are kind of the same, but it's different. I read this from um, about 10 different translations. And oh, by the way, if you go to um, Restored Gospel and use the advanced kind of King James search, what you'll find is that there's a the ability now to go and um, if you click on a King James verse, it will automatically take you to a good website, Bible Hub, which has multiple translations of all the different uh, verses. And so like, this is good if you're, if you're researching anyhow, but um, 
I, in fact, I'm going to bring a couple of these up real quick. Just uh, give me just a second here. So if I read this from like the new international version, uh, it translates, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. So it grabbed the word justice, but it said gracious and compassion. Um, the new living translation says the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. The Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. See, they took the word justice and they said faithful. Well, faithful, and there's another one where it says, all right, the, the Berry and Study Bible says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he rises in compassion for the Lord is a just God. Well, well just and faithful, they sort of imply, at least in the English thinking, he could be nice or he could be honest or he could be fair, right? When you say God is a just God, that, that's kind of what I think of. But when the word says God is a God of justice, justice has a different connotation. It, it carries um, judgment. It, it carries reading the law and executing the law according to how the law reads, um, unwavering. In, in other words, hey, you know, if the law says you're punished, you know, you go to jail for 30 days, you go to jail for 30 days. That's justice, right? Justice carries a lot more weight of judgment with it than just saying God is just or God is fair. Well, the reason I, I share this is because none of the translations at, at Bible Hub for, um, I'm looking at maybe 25 different translations of Isaiah 30, 18, various different Bibles. None of them carry these words, grace, mercy, and justice anywhere in the New Testament or anywhere in the Old Testament. But here's this Jewish Bible that that not only has it there, but it has everything in the correct context. And so when I when I looked at that, I thought, well, of course, does the Book of Mormon, which has not gone through multiple translations, does it ever combine grace, mercy, and justice? And we're thinking Old Testament times. Sure. Nephi writes this. Yay, this is Second Nephi 8, um, chapter uh, verse 11. And if you want it in the LDS version, it's going to be Second Nephi 11, verse 5. Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace and his justice and power and mercy in the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The original, the original writing in the Book of Mormon, when compared to the original Hebrew, um, and taking out all of the in-between understanding of language add up and match up completely with their message and substance. Exactly. And and all of these scholars, you know, that have tried to make the Bible more modern and, and very helpful in many ways still uh, have missed the very ancient Hebrew way of explaining it, and yet the Book of Mormon doesn't miss it, and it was translated one time in 1830. Yeah, by, by a, a young kid. boy that had no knowledge of exactly. <laughs> languages or, or you know, no uh, big quorum of university professors all weighing in and saying this is the best way to write this to uh, to um, get the Hebrew message across the intent. Nope, just just God and His Spirit and the people that wrote it that were Hebrew. Yeah, just him sitting there with a lantern and a pen and a paper and yeah. and sometimes a friend to help translate um, to write down the words. My, I just. Another evidence of validity, but but again, not not that we're trying to prove the Book of Mormon's valid, but that 
it just helps build faith that trust what it says, trust its message. It really is from God. And and so we can have that message to guide our life and to put complete faith and trust in when he reveals himself in, in the words, in the book. Exactly. Com- complete trust. Uh, hopefully it builds layer upon layer of faith and also maybe pulls us in to look more closely and, continually seek out the messages in there about Jesus and about our interaction with him, our relationship with him. You know, this Book of Mormon states so clearly this, this simple plan, and, and it's, it's so powerful that, you know, we were victims of justice. Sin was going to dictate we could not return to God God knew that in order for us to return, it was going to take an infinite act of mercy. In other words, mercy couldn't just forgive the sin. It took the shedding of infinite blood, you know, and there was only one who was infinite. um, Looking back on the whole story, when we think about justice, it probably escapes us. I know it escapes me to some extent because... We know Jesus came and he died, but from a from a culture of people that understood the laws and they seemed so harsh. I mean, certain things happen. You got to leave the village for a while, or or you did this. You have to do that. The law was applied so um, sternly and and such a part of life that we don't really live that way. We have laws, and we but. Not like that. I, I mean, I don't have any law that says I have to leave my family or my wife has to leave the the community for a while or, you know, we're un- just the thousands of, uh, it's just hundreds, I should say. Um, we don't we don't have that. So I think maybe sometimes when we sin or, or when we remain in our fallen state or we we uh, give up on the efforts to, to try to um, submit to God, become more like him, it's because we're we don't see that we don't understand justice and that there is a just response from him for who we are in the state that our heart is in. And mm-hmm. so it's not a immediate, uh, like the book of Mormon says, don't procrastinate this day of your probation. No. Um, things need to be going on that, that the thought of justice is very important for us to focus on, but, sometimes maybe Christians focus too much on love and and justice is part of God's love, but it's not like he loves us and Christ died and everything's going to be okay. I mean, that's true on one hand, but on the other hand, there's a lifetime of, of changing and submitting, you know, and obeying him so that he can change us that it needs to be taking place. So I do, uh, it's fun to focus on mercy, you know, and (laughs) yeah, yeah all good things go to heaven and um but the justice is important just as important yeah and this idea that the third element of this this grace is simply that in spite of knowing all this and understanding all this that a, a sacrifice somewhere in the eternal realm out somewhere in the universe or beyond in eternity couldn't suffice to pay the debt of sin that occurred here in the physical world that we live in, that that God himself had to come down and take on flesh. These are the words of Abinadi. They're not my words. 
and these are the words of King Benjamin, they're not my words, and these are the words of Nephi and Jacob, they're not my words, that God had to come down and take on flesh. And that was the whole meaning of this law of Moses to point them, that that was the whole way mercy was going to be applied and that it was this, (laughs) to use our vernacular, a huge gamble that it could even work, that God could somehow take on flesh and be like us and live a life without sin to become that eternal sacrifice. That was grace. That's the third component of it. That mm-hmm. grace is that he did it anyhow. And I would imagine, Mike, like you're saying, you know, we don't sometimes talk about the mercy, don't always think about the justice. I think we, in our finiteness, can't comprehend what grace really means. How how big of a love that really is, how big of a decision that really was. You know, I'm sure everyone in, in heaven and likely Satan was saying, forget those spirits you created that are going to be forever entrapped in a world of sin now you know they're not worth going after it's like you know ants on the sidewalk or something Mm. to them you know just let them go it's like no no and that you know it's it's something that we'll probably only comprehend when we're in his presence and then even probably not Mm. yeah it's hard to Hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, it really is. So one of the things that, um, just taking us back to where we were, you know, we're talking about the Book of Mormon being this book of mercy and how God's plan was and is to bring all people back to him. And he's doing it through these covenants. And the covenants are things done in the flesh. The Book of Mormon uses that term often where it's saying, these are physical, real things, real events that are going to happen to people in the world it'll often it'll say, Hey, like us in the flesh or whatever. When it's talking about in the flesh, it's talking about historical things that have happened or historical things that will happen. Uh, but, but physical parts of the covenants being fulfilled, that process isn't just to benefit a few people who we call the house of Israel or the Jews or people in the restoration. That process is by something that the things that happen in the flesh will have a huge spiritual benefit. And the huge spiritual benefit is this. God's pure word goes back to the world. And there's, it's, une, I can never get the word right, unequivocal, whatever. It's, it, it's, it's, there's, there's going to be no debate. Um, when God's people of the house of Israel respond to him, the covenant state at that point in time, God reveals his arm and power and the power of God's revealed not only to them, but to the world and, and his words will hiss forth and go back. And this is, this is kind of where we're at in this story. A couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about Enos and his prayers for his people, he wasn't the only one, but he prayed that someday his great, 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 great grandchildren would return to God and know him as he did. And I just found out this reading this week, you know, who he talks about the words of my father sunk deep in my heart when I went out to pray in the woods this day. He said, I went out hunting, you know, and the words of my father. Well, his father, I just put two and two together, was Jacob. It was Nephi's brother. And and Jacob is the one who actually has written these chapters, Second Nephi 6, verse 5 and 6. It's actually Jacob's words. Nephi writes most of second, first and second Nephi, but there's a couple chapters where where Nephi kind of like says, hey, I'm going to give the microphone to my brother here, and he's mm-hmm. going to speak for a little bit. Well, Jacob 
Jacob was Lehi's son who was born in the wilderness. So we don't know how many years younger than Nephi is, but he grew up, my gosh, he, he must have been paying attention to his older brother Nephi and not paying attention to Laman and Lemuel because he he not only got the understanding down, he got the language of the Hebrews down. This happened for us a couple months back, Mike. When, ah, it may have even been when we're doing some teaching at Colburn Road, but one day I remember talking to you about this. I said, hey, I just realized there's this parallel in the Book of Mormon where it talks about the death of the body and the death of the spirit, and he calls one uh, death and the other hell. And I said, there's like this parallel and, and it comes from Second Nephi chapter 6 of the death of the body and the death of the spirit and the grave and hell. And and that kind of jumped out at me, and I thought, man, there's there's a parallel there. Well, since then, I've, that that's from Second Nephi 6 verse 5. These are Jacob's words. Every sentence is a parallel in, 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 in these two chapters, and they're, they're deep and they're, they're profound, and, and it's all talking about um, truth of God. Well, so what happens in these chapters here um, is that when Jacob's writing, he says in, in, in all of chapter uh, 6, I believe it is, he keeps talking about this holy one of Israel, this holy one of Israel, how great is our God, this holy one of Israel. And he keeps comparing about this plan of salvation, this holy one of Israel. God is the holy one of Israel. And then in the next chapter, in, in uh, like Second Nephi 7, then he states, he says, oh, by the way, last night um, the angel told me his name would be Jesus. And he talks about how no one else would crucify their God. Well, what's interesting is that in my life before these last couple days, I always thought, oh, well, he finally learns about Jesus before. No, in chapter 7. In chapter 6, where we've been talking in chapter 5, these scriptures were full of the Savior. He just never called him by the name Jesus. He always and only called him as the Holy One of Israel. And why this is important was because this was Isaiah's favorite term for God. And when I went back to this Jewish Bible this morning, on the same page with all this other in um, Isaiah 30, it's like, here's this statement, begins with the word for, for thus saith my Lord Hashem Elohim, the Holy One of Israel. To a Jew, there is no disputing who that is. When you say Hashem, that is that is the name of the creator who they are not permitted to say when you say Elohim, that is the God of justice. When you say the Holy One of Israel, that's tying it all together, right? There's there's no way to misunderstand who this is. Well, well, Jacob spends all of chapter 6 talking about this Holy One of Israel. Hearken diligently and remember the words which I have spoken and come unto the Holy One of Israel and feast upon that which perishes not. Um, he, he this These are the words of Jacob in chapter 6. But then in chapter 7, he says, this is chapter 7, verse 5. Wherefore, I say unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, for in the last night the angel spake that this is his name, should come among the Jews, among the more wicked part of the world. So he's been talking about how the Holy One of Israel would be the sacrifice all along, and then he finally says, and his name is Jesus. Well, So these are the words. So when we talk about Enos wanting uh, his message to go the knowledge to go forth to his people later on, he was pondering on the words of his father, which were Jacob, which is probably these were some of the words he was pondering on or the message, the understanding that Jacob 
had exactly of Christ and well, are we going to go through that? That would be fun to go through this this chapter. It's like that's what prompted me to actually reread this because what you just said, Mike, exactly. I thought I thought, you know, when you just start reading Enos, it's like, oh, the words of my father sunk deep in my heart. I never even realized Enos was Jacob's son. And then when I read this, it's like there's all the, all the only thing he's talking about is the sacrifice of the Holy One of Israel. And then in this chapter seven, he he's explaining his name is Christ. And then how the nations need to repent. And he says, when the day cometh that they shall believe in me. Now, he's wrapping this back around to his people. He says, hey, I can liken all these things to you. I'm going to compare it to you so you understand. He said, thus saith the Lord, when the day cometh that they shall believe in me, that I am Christ, that I covenanted with their fathers, they shall be restored in the flesh. Okay, that's the physical upon the earth. Unto, their lands, unto the lands of their inheritance. And then they shall be gathered in from their long dispersion from the isles of the sea and the four quarters of the earth. Um, there's a parallel in Scripture. Now I'm realizing, too, that when God restores people to the lands, that's a physical half of a parallel. The other half is the spiritual. He's restoring them to himself or to the knowledge of him that they had lost. When they were scattered and and um, sent out to the world, uh, other than like the Nephites and stuff, you know, sometimes people were righteous and sent out for righteous reasons, but sometimes people were scattered like Israel when they were uprooted out of Jerusalem, just after Nephi and Lehi departed, you, you get them living in another country because they had fallen away from God. Well, 70 years later, they come back and they start restoring themselves to the land, but they start restoring their relationship to God. This is happened in the past, and this is what the Book of Mormon prophesies in the future, is that Israel gets restored to their land. At the same time, they begin a, a, an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and that they go hand in hand. And so what when we, when we talk about gathering, gathering always has to coincide with an increase of knowledge and who God is. And it's like you can't talk about one without the other. We often do. We say, well, you just need to gather, whatever. But the the gathering in the Book of Mormon very much parallels this regathering of knowledge or as the parable of the olive trees discussed, grafting back in to come back to a knowledge of Christ. Um, and this is a little bit unrelated, but it's, it is kind of related. So, these scriptures, and we'll get into them in a second, they talk about how Nephi's descendants and the Jews would be scattered and smitten by the Gentiles. And in fact, that scripture is right here in Second Nephi chapter uh, 7, again, Jacob's words, where he said this. Um, he, he says, now, J- um, wherefore, this is Second uh, Nephi 7 verse 3, as it hath been shown unto me that many of our children shall perish in the flesh because of unbelief, nevertheless, God will be merciful unto many. So he said, I saw a lot of my people fall away, but I saw some of them still in, in God's hand. And our children shall be restored that they might come to that which will give them the true knowledge of their Redeemer. So he sees this in the future. These are the words that Enos was praying about later. Hey, I was, I'm praying also that our people become restored. And then, and then he says this, Wherefore, as I said unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, for in the last night the angel spake unto me that this should be his name, 
that he should come among the Jews, among them that are the more wicked part of the world, and they shall crucify him. And for thus it behooveth our God. And there is none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. For should the mighty miracles be wrought among other nations, they would repent and know that he be their God. But because of priestcrafts and iniquities, they at Jerusalem will stiffen their necks against him that he be crucified. Wherefore, because of their iniquities, destructions, famines, pestilences, and bloodsheds shall come upon them, and they which shall not be destroyed shall be scattered among all nations. So here we have this scattering because they rejected God. Right? Yeah, it was the it was the church keeping the people from coming to Christ. Yeah. When when you hear about priestcrafts, that's um that's you know, manipulating and taking, I say it's described in the Book of Mormon, but taking on, you know, the priesthood, the servanthood, the 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 relationship with God, and twisting it for your own benefit, you know, and that's when they says the Jews would be the only ones that would, you know, everybody else would repent and, and come to God. It's because of their iniquities and their priestcrafts, how they've perverted the very thing that. Uh, was speaking of this God to set, sent to save them, to, right? To keep them from coming to Him, and and that's that's powerful when when the church misrepresents the true nature of God and what He's trying to do for their own, because their own pride gets in the way. They're yeah. serving themselves, and that's probably the nature of priestcraft: serving yourself rather than serving God, but but appearing in the name of God. Yeah, and that creeps in at pretty much every level. I think through right. history, you know. So you so in Second Nephi seven. So Jacob, uh, I, I won't slow us down with with all the beautiful parallels in here. But here he's talking about because they crucify God, they were going to be scattered among the nations in verse eleven. But then he says, "But behold, thus saith the Lord God: When the day cometh that they shall believe in me, that I am Christ." Then I have covenanted with their fathers that they should be restored in the flesh upon the earth under the lands of their inheritance. And this, so this is kind of the comparison and the parallel. He's saying, hey, because they, they rejected me, they're scattered, but when they come back to me, they're going to be regathered. And, and we're seeing the beginnings of it now, but the, the arm of God hasn't been revealed in power yet, and it's going to be. There's, there's an awakening coming. And then it says, and it shall come to pass that they shall be gathered in from their long dispersion and from the isles of the sea and from the four parts of the earth. And so um, this is where I was about to say, you know, it, it doesn't relate, but it does relate. It, it'll take a whole nother episode or two to ever talk about Daniel and, and the revelations and the understandings he had. But I want to jump past some of it because it's explained in Daniel in depth. And I want to, I want to just go to something in the end. The Jews looked in recent history, and they, they've seen this perishing. They've seen this scattering. They've seen being smitten by the Gentiles. You know, the, the, the number one atrocities to the Jews have always been done in the name of Jesus to, to them by people who thought they were well-meaning. Hey, let's straighten out these backward mm-hmm. Jews, right? You know, let's, let's force them to believe in Jesus, right? And, and that's happened through centuries. Well, people would, Jews would say, yeah, but where was God during the Holocaust, right? And this is the part, it, it might not fit, but it does. You see, what the Book of Mormon explains again so beautifully, he said, these Gentiles who would smite you and would scatter you will also become 
as Isaiah says, kings shall be your nursing fathers and queens your nursing mothers, and they will carry you on their shoulders, you know, kind of like a child. The very Gentiles who who brought these atrocities to the Jews also were the only ones who could bring them back to the homeland. And the reason I bring this up right now is because although the Jews wondered, how could it be that something so bad happened to us? Well, what also happened was the good thing they could have never imagined. Maybe it took something as bad as the Holocaust for Jew, you know, Gentiles, Americans specifically in England, to wake up to the fact that, hey, the Jews have been mistreated forever. Had it not happened, there would probably still be no nation of Israel. And, and the point is this. It was the very atrocity, the worst thing that happened to Jews in recorded history in, in World War II era that Hitler was carrying out, and, and the Catholic Church had part of it, although that was politically... Uh, swept under the rug. This vile act against the Jews enabled the holy act of restoring them to their land, which is something they didn't have for 2,000 years. And that's when these kings, you know, kings shall be your nursing fathers. That's when the leaders of, of nation, you know, here we have Harry Truman right here from Independence, you know, signing this declaration, you know, uh, restoring, and it was done right here in Independence in his house. You know, there's some symbolism there that in yeah. this town of Independence, he signs this declaration restoring Israel as a nation, giving them their land back. <laughs> That's is cool because when we go on a walk, I walk by that house a block away from here. Yeah, the squirrels two, can jump from your trees <laughs> to here. He said. Two, two blocks away. I didn't, well, I knew he signed that, but I never thought about him signing it right there in his house. Yeah. I knew it was signed here. and That is. Isn't that something? Okay, so when I go by that house the next time, yeah. I'm going to have a little different thought. Yeah, yeah. God God has marvelous purposes and parallels that we'll never understand. I'm going to look forward, if if we get to be there, you know, for a thousand years of understanding all the things we missed about our history, you know, things God did. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so this, but what happens is that, uh, so Jacob's kind of explaining in a summary format, he says in, in 2 Nephi 7.14, so he's saying that the Jews will be scattered from all along the earth, the house of Israel, not just the Jews, the house of Israel, but they'll be gathered back when they come to a knowledge of him. And the 14 says, and the nations of the Gentiles shall be great in the eyes of me, saith God, in carrying them forth to the lands of their inheritance. And and see what Jacob is skillful in. He takes Isaiah's words and he explains them. And he doesn't always tell you when he's doing it. He jumps in and out of Isaiah. He just explains Isaiah, and now he's quoting them. In verse 15, he says, Yea, the kings of the Gentiles shall be nursing fathers unto them, and their queens shall become nursing mothers. These these are Isaiah's words, but he's but what Isaiah doesn't explain that Jacob does, he said, the nations of the Gentiles are going to help carry them back to the lands of their inheritance. So Jews have had Isaiah's words forever about the nursing fathers and nursing mothers, but they didn't have the connection of the meaning to know that it meant, hey, they're going to help restore them to their lands. So this atrocity they endured in the earlier part of last century um, was also going to bring healing you know, all by the Gentiles to them. And again, this word of the house of Israel that got buried in the ground that came back to the Gentiles, to us, is the thing that restores them to the truth. You know, no, no matter what we've done with it, um, 
God has this plan that he said from the beginning. He says, hey, don't worry, I can do my own work. I'll get it done. But this, these words that we hold in our hand, these, these precious words from this perfect God become the words that open their eyes mm-hmm. to who Hashem, Elohim, the Holy One of Israel was, is. Jesus Christ. I'd like to, I'm really feeling, there's, because we're on a series, What Does the Book of Mormon Teach?, I really feel like we should go through these couple of chapters and just see line what it line. teaches about the Holy One of Israel. Because this this is the meat, and this is just a gem, and, and I'm just skimming through as you're talking chapter 7. There are so many neat things that are going to, that it's talking about that are probably being fulfilled right now before our eyes and, and shortly to come. And with all of the, you know, th- crazy things going on in the world right now with disease and where we're at, um, I think this would be great to to go through and tie in. Well, I just, this is I'm where we're at. reading it right now. Yeah, this is let's let's continue the next session with Second uh, Nephi seven because I think you know last couple times and a little bit today we talked a little bit about the plight of the house of Israel, but mm-hmm. but where the Gentiles fold into this picture is marvelously explained here in the in the coming parts of Second Nephi seven. Okay, well. Um, I guess we just did wrap it up. <laughs> Anything else, Corey? <laughs> no, can't wait till next time. While we're walking around and doing our things in life, just remember we are all just walking each other home. <laughs> God bless. <laughs>